Welcome to episode 11 of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. This episode, I spoke to Stephanie Sullivan. Steph is in charge of the whole PGCE training program at Nottingham University, but is still heavily involved in the secondary maths PGCE. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, Steph was my maths tutor 12 years ago when I did my maths PGCE at Nottingham Uni. After I'd completed an economics degree at Cambridge University, a brief flirtation with working in the city and a year picking courgettes in Australia. I've never looked at a courgette in quite the same way again. Anyway, I am not ashamed to say that I loved every single second well, most of them, of my secondary PGCE in Nottingham, and it gave me a wonderful start to my teaching career, for which I will always be grateful. So, in a wide-ranging interview, we covered the following things. How does Steph advise her trainees to think about the planning process? Steph describes an excellent lesson she saw on forming linear equations, and then a lesson on bearings that looked very good on paper, but which went off the rails for a very important reason. We discussed the big issue of whether good teachers are born or made, and what are some of the traits and habits of the most successful teachers that Steph has worked with. We look at the merits of a PGCE route versus Schools Direct, what Nottingham Uni has to offer, and what Steph would like to see included in the PGCE if it was up to her. Which it is, so that's very good news. We talk about the best practices Steph sees in schools for supporting their trainee teachers. And finally, we look at the most common reasons for the huge number of teachers leaving the profession in the first few years and what can be done about this. I really hope this interview will be of interest to teachers in general, whether you're a trainee teacher yourself, someone thinking of joining the profession, an NQT, someone who mentors trainee teachers or just works with them in general in school, or just someone like me who is interested in the preparation and support of the next cohort of teachers. There are links to everything we discuss on the podcast page as usual. And as ever, as ever at this stage, just a plea that if you enjoy these podcasts, please consider writing a brief review or giving us a rating on iTunes. I've had 11 ratings so far, which is absolutely amazing, until you realise that a podcast about cabbages has had 23. I can but dream. Anyway, time for me to shut up now as I introduce Steph Sullivan. Thanks so much for listening. I really hope you enjoy the interview and I will see you on the other side. Okay, Steph, so let me start with your math speed dating questions. So question number one, what is your favourite number and why? Okay, for a mathematician, I'll probably pick quite a boring number. Well, not boring, but obvious one. So I've gone for 1.618, which is a golden ratio. But the reason I've gone for it is it's actually the first time that I was ever fascinated by math. So a bit of a a confession here. Um, I just enjoyed maths at school because I was good at it and same at A-level and same at degree, really. And it was in my first year of teaching that somebody showed me the golden ratio and it absolutely intrigued me. And it was the first time that maths became something other than I I like it because I was good at it. So that's why I chose the golden ratio. Oh, nice, nice answer. And can you remember the the context in which you, you met it in that first year of teaching? I can, yeah. So I was having to teach the Fibonacci sequence and I had a really 
head of department. She introduced me to a book called Sources of Mathematical Discovery, which is ancient, but I still have it now. And um, it had all sorts of stuff about maths in nature and, and things like that. And it had about the golden ratio. And then this head of maths got the kids to do a survey of all the kids in the school. that My class walked around with a sheet with rectangles on it. And the kids had to instantly say which rectangle their eyes were drawn to. And then the class analysed it. And amazingly, they all picked rectangles that fitted the golden ratio and i just thought it was really amazing so that's why i picked it <laughs> nice no you've sold me on that one that's that's a cracking answer that one well uh, what about number two then what was your favorite topic in maths as a student i liked geometry um, but what i really liked was the really complicated old o-level questions where you had to find the unknown angle and i loved having to spend ages fitting in everything i knew and then suddenly realizing i'd got the one i wanted so that was my favorite topic ah nice and did that also kind of uh, go across to when you were teaching was that your favorite thing to teach as well um yeah, I did like teaching it. Yeah, yeah, I like teaching that. I, I really like teaching number, though. I, I liked um, sequences and patterns in numbers and problem solving. That sort of stuff was what I liked teaching. Superb. And if um, you were suddenly banned from being involved in any kind of maths education whatsoever, what, what job would you do? I think I would like to be an architect. I listened to a programme on the radio several years ago with a really uh, famous architect and also building designer talking. And what he was saying was that actually you needed every single subject to be able to be an architect. So you needed all the obvious, like engineering, math stuff. But you also needed to understand sound and music for the acoustics. Uh, you understood psychology for understanding what people would like to see cultural history for how the building would fit and i just thought that would be a really nice job oh very nice yeah that, that does sound yeah i think i might apply for that myself actually you've hooked <laughs> me, me in on that one um, it's quite hard though it takes a lot of years yeah, that, <laughs> yeah that's true um can you just tell tell listeners steph what what your current role is and if you can just give us a quick kind of career overview briefly telling us how, how you got to where you are today Okay, so I trained to be a teacher in Newcastle and I did most of my teaching in the northeast and in Northumberland. So I ended up as a head of department in a school in Northumberland. Um, I then went travelling for a bit, actually. And when I came back, came back to Nottingham because I had nowhere to live and had no ties or anything and saw a job in the TES, which was for a, um, a large publishing firm who it was in the times of the numeracy project coming in and Publishing firms were panicking about what schools were doing with resources and they wanted somebody to travel all over the country, working with different schools, looking at how they taught maths and how they used resources in their lessons. Um, and I did that for about five or six years, travelled abroad a lot and did more and more consultancy work with primary and secondary maths departments. Uh, then did my master's and uh, then became a mum and so then moved into initial teacher education, did a year at Derby, and then I've been at Nottingham for 14 years, 13 years. Uh, I'm part of the maths team here, but I'm also the PGC course leader. Flipping out, fantastic. That is a, a varied career. And do, the, the question I always like to know from people who've started as teachers and, and kind of still kept it in, in the education profession, but, but moved out of the classroom is, what, what do you miss about teaching and what do you not miss? Um, well, I feel like I'm still teaching. I'm just teaching beginning teachers now, not um, not kids. I miss the kids. I love 
just talking to teenagers and like having a laugh with them. But I get that from my own kids and their friends. <laughs> um, and I still go into schools a lot. So, yeah, I don't feel like I'm that far removed from it, really. I feel like I'm in a lot of lessons still, still working with children, still thinking about how children learn. I guess I don't miss the rigidity of the time so that you've always got to be in this place in these yes. hours, whereas I do have a little bit more flexibility now. So that's nice. <laughs> no, that sounds, that sounds good to me. Um, well, one of the kind of most popular features on, on these podcasts is where we talk about routines and, and planning lessons. And when, when I was kind of doing prep for this stuff, I thought you're in a very fortunate position that you you kind of work with teachers from from the first time they ever think about planning lessons and putting lessons together. And you probably get to get to see more lessons than, than many people listening to this. So can you just talk us through perhaps um, a particularly well-planned lesson that you've uh, you've observed recently or, or in the past or, or whatever? And just talk us through what, what you consider to be some of the important features of a, of a well-planned lesson. OK, I think to me it's about the teacher really thinking about the mathematical journey that the kids are going to go on in the lesson. So sort of like the story of the maths developing through the lesson and that they start with the sort of the expert knowledge, the knowledge that they want the children to have at the end. And then they think about how to decompress that knowledge and all the sort of small steps that the pupils will need to go through. And then they think about the decisions they need to make as a teacher to be able to take those the pupils through that journey. Um, so I think the planning comes from that, from really decompressing the knowledge and working out all the stages that the pupils will go through. Um, I guess I think an example of this in terms of a lesson I've seen recently, we've been doing some work with East Midlands East Maths Hub and all of our student teachers last week actually went and spent a day at, the, at their like main school and we watched a lesson being taught and it was on formulating equations and um, just it was a research lesson so it had been designed by a group of teachers and I think the lesson had been taught about three times by the time we'd seen it but the focus was so clearly on we're looking at formulating equations we're not looking at solving them and a really step-by-step -step approach to building up the pupils understanding and focusing on how can we use a mathematical statement to describe to make sense of this situation and what I really liked in it was the way the teacher had devised their, not just their questions, but the language that they use. So they had a big emphasis on the pupils using the right language. But she regularly would say things like, I've noticed. So, so one example was um, the pupils were looking at formulating an equation and it was 80 equals 20 plus Y plus Y plus Y. And some of the pupils had changed that into 20 Y, Y, Y. And instead of saying, well, that's wrong, it was like, I've noticed this. What do you think this would mean? Does it mean the same thing? And that real emphasis on the pupils noticing their work and trying to make sense of whether it was right or wrong. And the other thing that she built into the plan that I really liked was this idea of concept, non-concept. So um, looking at the features of an equation and then looking at some equations, some expressions, some inequalities, and the pupils being able to say, this is an equation or this is not an equation, and why? 
And just to kind of dig into this a little bit deeper, cause one, one of the questions that I get asked a lot and get asked to put to the guests is, is about the questioning. And you, you've mentioned there that the questioning from the teachers sounded like it was excellent. Is this yeah. kind of whole class questioning? Is it one-to-one? And how are the kids responding uh, to that? If you can just kind of talk about the actual practicalities of, of that questioning, how it's happening in that lesson that you saw. In that lesson, it was a big, because basically this was a teacher who'd been on the Shanghai Exchange, the, the national programme. So she'd been to Shanghai and one of the things that she was trying to model in the lesson was what they had taken from that experience and what they were putting into their lessons now. So there wasn't a focus on asking individual pupils questions. It was very much a focus on the whole class. But what I realised was she, she did use questions, but it was less questions and it was more noticing and then getting the pupils to talk about it to respond to what she'd noticed so right the way through she would be looking at different pupils work having work under the visualizer and saying I've noticed here you've put this talk to me about it so it was a different style to the normal questioning that you would see um, but I thought it was really effective that that sounds that sounds excellent. And just on that kind of Shanghai thing, because this is something that obviously crops up a lot when I, when I'm talking to people these days. And um, what, what's your take on that, Steph? Is that is that something that is is it a revolution? Is it something that teachers, your trainee teachers, can kind of build into their practice? Is it something that's suitable for for all um, kind of topics, all ages, all all abilities? What what's your, what's your take on that? I think it's a really good question. Um, I don't think it's a revolution. I don't think mastery is a revolution. Uh, definitely. I think there is stuff that we've been doing here for many, many years and ideas that we've talked about for a long time that would fit exactly with what's being talked around when the notion of mastery is discussed. So to me, it's it's deep learning. And um, it's being able to make links between mathematical ideas. It's being able to be flexible as a mathematical thinker. Um, So I don't think it's a revolution or new. On the other hand, I do think it's good that people are really thinking about that deep knowledge of maths. And I think it's, it's exciting that teachers are excited about that. I guess to me, the key is I don't I personally don't think we should be looking at creating a set of off the peg lessons that teach mastery that um, teachers just pick up and use because I think the key to it is that the teacher has a really deep mathematical knowledge themselves so that they can make decisions within the lesson that are appropriate to their learners. Yeah, no, that's a very, very sensible answer, that Steph. I, I fully agree with that. And and just before we move away from this lesson, and I get a bit obsessed when I when I hear people talking about lessons that they've watched, because I think we can learn so much from it. Could you just talk a little bit about any assessment that happened in in that lesson, whether it be formative, summative, or, or whatever? What what was what was the styles of assessment that were going on in in that forming equations lesson that you watched? She used the visualizer a lot, so there was a lot of um, the pupils assessing their own understanding so it fits again with that idea I've noticed this what do you think and the pupils assessing that some use of mini whiteboards which was really good um, and that was really effective Uh, but it was it was again it was very much focusing on the whole class and focusing on you know have the whole class got this Um, And the assessment at the end came from she had all the kids working straight away, was looking at it straight away, was talking to us as a group about what she was going to do in terms of intervening with where different pupils were at. I don't know whether I've answered your question. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's superb. That's superb. Um, 
if we can move from that then to to uh, again another of my favourite questions, and I, I think we can learn a lot from from mistakes. And again, I was when I was thinking about the, this this interview, I thought again that you must sit through hundreds and hundreds of lessons over kind of the, the last few years. And and I and I often find well when I observe um, teachers' lessons either in my school or in other schools, sometimes it can be quite a, a frustrating experience because you think oh I, I I will I might do it differently and so on. And you, you've got to very much put yourself get, get out of that mindset and put yourself into the, the the shoes of the teacher and their style and adapt to that and, and so on mm. but but with that in mind i wonder if you could talk and, and be as general or specific as you like and obviously not not naming any names but <laughs> some lessons that you've seen that have gone badly and and what is it that makes lessons not go so well okay um i have got a specific lesson because I, I did think about that and it fits again with sort of the things we've been thinking about here over the last few years, which is thinking about observing a lesson and purely looking at the maths. So it's quite easy when when we go in to sort of start talking about the behaviour or start talking about how the teacher is, where they're positioned or how they're talking to kids and so on. But this year we've been really focusing on doing observations that look at nothing but the maths. So um, making a note of all the mathematical moments through the lesson and then thinking about why that might have made the lesson really successful or not. So the lesson I'm thinking about is a lesson that I watched a few weeks ago taught by a really really good trainee I think he's going to go on to be an amazing teacher and he devised a lesson that was around bearings he thought really hard about it so on the surface the structure was really nice it was a, a starter where the pupils had to um, measure angles using protractors then there was a, an activity with a, a real map of the UK and he invited the pupils to think about if they were a pilot in the olden days and how they would move using bearings and then the main body of the task was a problem around a crime that had been committed and what they had to do through a set of clues was to try and find where the perpetrator was um, so there was a set of clues around bearings um, and they got a map of the town and they had to find where the where the perpetrator was and on again on the surface it was certainly wasn't a disastrous lesson in any way the kids were really great really good relationship with the teacher and so on but when you started focusing on just the math we were able to really unpick where issues were that had affected whether the pupils had really learned from the lesson so there's some simple examples so in the starter he hadn't included any reflex angles and obviously if you're then going to move on to bearings then that's uh, yes. you know a, a bit remiss and it would have helped to have them in there um he hadn't thought about even though these pupils had used protractors lots of times before what they might have forgotten to do uh, what might they might have forgotten in terms of using protractors and that caused a few issues but where it got really interesting was when you started thinking about where the maths had varied and where that might be causing problems so in the um, activity that came before the problem the, what the pupils had to do was find find the bearing from London to Nottingham or find the distance from London to Nottingham. The shift to the problem, though, was actually the pupils were given the bearing and given the distance from a location and they had to find the second location. So there was a huge variation in what they practised and what uh. they then had to do. And that then meant there was a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of him having to run around, help people after, you know, all the things you can imagine in a lesson yes. that's not not quite working as you <laughs> want to do, to do. And so we had a really good conversation afterwards about 
that it's that same business about the small steps and being really aware of when you're making a mathematical change, when there's a variation happening mathematically. And then you can make a decision. So it wouldn't necess- the decision wouldn't necessarily be, oh, my goodness, they'd have had to have practiced doing this before this activity, although that could have been one way of doing it. But the other way might have been to say, let's make the variation really obvious to the pupils. What's different here? What are you going to have to do differently? Now have a think about how you're going to do that. And the decision you make would vary on how you think the pupils would handle it. So I think the really interesting thing at the moment for me is about exploring lessons, focusing just on the maths, just on the story of the maths and where where the maths is moving, where there's variations, and then what decisions you should make as a mathematician, as a teacher, to ensure that the pupils stay with you. That that's fascinating stuff, that step. And and with with something like that, is that just is that you observing this teacher, or are you able to share those experiences with with the other members of the PGCE cohort? Because that that detailed deconstruction and that focus on the maths seems to me such a valuable process. That are you able to kind of disseminate that across the other uh, training teachers? Yeah, so what we've been doing this year, we've worked with a group of our, our um, school mentors and we've come up with a like a lesson observation pro forma that just looks at maths. So we've got a set of key questions that I used in relation to that observation. And then, as I say, last week, we all went into a school together and we observed the lesson I was talking about earlier. But then what we also did was look at the same set of questions and again had a, a conversation about how do you unpick a lesson in this way? Um, we've got a we've got what we're calling a, a didactics strand to our course now. So what we've found over the years is we've talked to beginning teachers about the fact that they need to develop their subject knowledge for teaching. And if you get somebody coming in that's got a first in maths from a good university, then they're like, one of them actually admitted to us. He said, I almost switch off when you mention subject yes, knowledge because yes. my subject knowledge is amazing. So we made a decision this year to not act, to move away from the language completely. So we've adopted the um, terminology of didactics, but not the UK sort of didactics being a lecturer type didactics, but the European model. So thinking about the fact that, you know, school maths is this body of knowledge and we want pupils to be able to engage with that knowledge and learn it. And the didactics is, is the sort of decisions we make as a teacher about how we structure the maths, how we uh, structure the activities, what decisions we make in the lessons. So it's sort of like a theme that's running through everything we're doing with our students at the moment about thinking about how you design a lesson how you put it together not that you've got to come up with the amazing activities yourself I, I think there's no point whatsoever in beginning teachers reinventing the wheel I think there's amazing activities out there but that you have to understand the activity really well and you have to understand the journey you want the children to go on really well and then you can think about the decisions you're making along the way well there's a couple of things that I'd like to pick up on there Steph the, the first is that point you made about um, essentially the wealth of resources that that there are out there and I remember when I first started teaching so this this is my 11th year and um, as, I'll, as I've mentioned in the introduction I've, I've got a very good start to my teaching career being taught taught by yourself um, <laughs> um, Tez, back in those days Tez was kind of in its early infancy and there certainly wasn't the kind of plethora of bloggers and stuff out there kind of sharing resources so very much you, you had to kind of create your own materials from scratch but I 
see to kind of today's NQTs and younger teachers and when we, when we get PGCE and um, Schools Direct trainees in, a lot of their planning time kind of is spent on TES, kind of searching for resources, finding a resource and then essentially just using it. And my, my fear always there is that resources are very kind of specific to the teacher who's created them. They've created them for their teaching style, their relationship with the kids, their particular set, perhaps the time of day they're teaching the lesson and, and so on. And that a good good resource for one person isn't necessarily a good good resource for the others. So how do you how do you kind of get around that? How do you essentially try and encourage your student, your, your trainee teachers, not to simply take a, a five star PowerPoint off TES, turn up the next day and try and deliver that kind of you know as it was written, if that makes sense. It makes complete sense. Um, and I, I worry exactly like you do. I particularly worry about PowerPoints and, uh, and the fact that they have very much been designed for a certain context and a, a certain um, pupil. And I also think that there's a real danger that uh, beginning teachers hide behind PowerPoints. So I talk to ours a lot about um, if you're going to define something, is it, is it the best thing to have your own perfect definition written up on a PowerPoint slide? Or wouldn't it be much better to start from the pupil's partial understanding and together build up a definition that you work on till it fits with what you knew, the place you knew you wanted to get to, but you got there together? Um, when I said about reinventing the wheel, on saying that, I think there are some really good activities, math, really well-designed mathematical activities out there. And um, I don't see anything wrong with beginning teachers using them. I think to me, it's the same thing as I said before. The key is I shouldn't be looking at resources. I think the worry sometimes is they start with the Internet and look for a resource and then trying after hours of looking for the perfect resource, trying to fit it to a lesson. Whereas what we talk to them about is you design the journey of the maths, you know exactly what steps you want to go through. And then you either really quickly find an activity that fits it or you design your own that fits it. But what you don't do is spend hours of your time searching for an activity that doesn't fit what you actually want to do. Absolutely. That, that, that's, very, again, very, very sound advice. And the other thing I, w I wanted to just pick up that you said was um, when, when you... Um, are observing lessons you mentioned you had um i think i heard you right that you had almost like a pro forma of, yeah. of kind of, of things that you look for in, in in lessons would you be able to just give us a bit of a sense of what some of those um questions that you ask yourself as an observer are on that form yeah so it's sort of focusing on um what's the key mathematical idea in the lesson and and how have you made it apparent so i would be thinking about if i was the pupil is it really obvious to me what the maths in this lesson is what it's about and what it's for and and what the purpose of it is and then there's questions that are about the design of the lesson and how that's helped uh, make sure that there's a clear progression of mathematical understanding running through. Questions about how you challenge the pupil's mathematical understanding um, and then questions about the mathematical language that's used and how that supports the progression of understanding. So basically, the whole pro forma is focusing on the pupil's mathematical understanding and how the teacher is making that progress. Nice, got it, got it. And I'll, I want to move now on to talking about PGCE or, or teacher trainee to, uh, students in general. And I'm going to start with perhaps the most kind of potentially deep question I've ever asked on this <laughs> podcast. Um, Steph, do you reckon a good teacher is born or made? 
a teacher is born or made? I think it's a bit of both, probably. Um, I think um, I think there probably are some teachers that were born with certain. Uh, there's definitely certain skills, isn't it, that make it a lot easier to be a really good teacher. Um, I think some of those skills are harder to teach, but not impossible to teach. Um, so I think if you have somebody that really wants to be a teacher and is open to learning, then they will be able to learn those skills um, with help. Uh, but obviously it's easier if you've got those skills. Um, does that answer it? It's, it certainly does, but I'm, I'm going to dig a bit deeper here. What, yeah. what, what are some of those, those skills that you think uh, are perhaps shared by your most successful um, teacher trainees? I think the most successful uh, teacher trainees or teachers in general are the ones that are as interested in the uh, the teacher learner relationship as they are in the subject they're teaching. I think where you get really successful teachers, they're the ones that are interested in their learners. And I don't necessarily mean interested in what their learners are doing out of school or whatever, but they're interested in that relationship and building up a trusting relationship and being open to listening to their learner, being open to adapting for their learner. And I think some people are naturally open to that. And other people, that's a bit harder to learn. Uh, but if they're open to having a go, they can get that as well. That, that's interesting that, that you pick up on that. And I wonder, are there any other, I guess the word habits is, is perhaps the most appropriate. Any any habits that you've picked up on that are shared by your, your kind of more successful students who, who then go on to become the more successful teachers? Um Organisation helps. <laughs> so if you've got somebody that can develop good organisational habits, then that's definitely a, a key to success. I think, though, more importantly, uh, it's those people who are reflective. So those ones that get into the habit of saying, why did that work and understanding why it worked or why didn't that work and understanding why it didn't work. Um, I think that's a, a massive thing. I think those people that are willing to take a risk and put themselves in a really uncomfortable situation um, is also a really key factor to those that end up really flying and being very successful. Um, I think people who are open to letting other people help them. So they're able to, you know, share if they're having a disaster, share if they're feeling very vulnerable or worried. Um, and, and they're open to sharing that and also open to helping other people and get and mucking in and getting involved with what's going on in a school or a department. Absolutely. And do you find that the degree that they've done matters, both in terms of the subject or the actual class of the degree that they've got? Um. Very personally, <laughs> degree I don't think matters. I we having done this job for many many years, I've worked with some amazing math teachers with the highest classification of degree, and I've worked with some who've got the highest classification of degree who really struggle to be a teacher. I think good subject knowledge matters. Um, so I think really understanding your subject, if you're going to teach up to A-level, having, you know, doing really well yourself at A-level and really understanding A-level maths is really important. Um, and going beyond that, having that additional knowledge. But I, I think it's very hard to do it just by classification of degree, because I think there's so much variation there um, that's got nothing to do with teaching. 
Um, I think there's so much that we don't know about why a learner has got a certain classification of degree. So it might be that you get somebody who's who's got a 2-2, but they've got that 2-2 through really hard work and really developing an understanding of their, their own subject, which would really feed into them being a good teacher. So I think it's much more complicated than that. But you do need a very sound subject knowledge for the subject that you're teaching. And are you at the stage, Steph, because you, you've been doing this for, for many years here, are you at the stage where if, if you meet, when you meet your kind of new cohort of, of, of student teachers every year, can you tell reasonably quickly to a, a relative degree of accuracy who's going to make it and who's not going to make it or who's going to be the successful ones and who's who's not? Who's, who's going to be the stars? All, <laughs> our, all our trainees are successful. <laughs> <laughs> um, you... Sometimes yes and sometimes no. So sometimes on day one of the course you look and you're thinking, yeah, that's absolutely going to be my start. And, you know, very, very often you might be right. Sometimes, though, and that's what's really exciting, people that on those first few days you're really not sure about, as they grow in confidence, as they they get into the classroom, as they start developing their teaching, become absolutely amazing. And that's really lovely to see. So... I think you can see potential. I think it becomes easier and easier the longer you do the job to see potential. Um, but I, I think you can always get caught out and, and in a good way, really surprised by people. Fantastic. Superb. Well, if we can turn our attention now to your PGCE course in, in particular, what, yeah. uh, what do you think are some of the most important parts of the, of the PGCE course that you offer for, for secondary maths teachers? Oh, good question. Um, I think I think it's really important for uh, there to be a very close partnership between us as a university and the schools we work with. I think that has a massive impact on everything we do with our trainees. So uh, we work very closely with our schools, very closely with our mentors. Lots of our mentors are ex-student teachers. So I think that has a big impact. Um, we get our student teachers in schools in week one of the course. And um, I think that's important. Um, but equally, I think it's important for them to have space right at the start to have ideas thrown at them and be challenged. So particularly for maths, for example, in uh, week one of the course, where we're getting them to really think about what maths is and we're getting them to revisit their thinking about things. So virtually across the board, our new maths teachers will come in and say that you must be set for maths. That's the only way to teach maths. And then when you start challenging them, they start realising, well, that's because that's the way I was taught and I was in top set. But actually, what's that mean for all those people who weren't in top yes, set? Yes. So it, giving them space to, to feel uncomfortable about where they thought their starting point was, I think, is really important. Um, and challenging them to think about what subject knowledge for teaching is and how that's different from subject knowledge as they come into the course. So that's where that idea of the didactic strand that I talked about comes in. Um, we also do a lot of work with we've got a very big centre for research into mass education here. So uh, we have some really um, national and international figures in the building that work with us on the course. Um, and what we've got all of our student teachers at some stage join a uh, what we call a crime elective so crime is the center for research into math education and during their pgc year they work with a researcher on a particular area of interest so this year we've got some working on uh, what are the um 
barriers to success in maths for socially uh, socially economically disadvantaged pupils. Got another group working on how do you design tasks that will enable pupils to practice sort of key math skills, but in lots of different ways. Um, so I think that's a really important strand, that ability to be able to work with and inquire into maths with experts in the field. I think makes a big, a big difference. Um, so they're, they're with us. Um, they're in schools right from week one of the course, and then they get that gradual build up to teaching. The way our course is structured, there's a lot of space for them to observe lessons, to team teach with really experienced teachers, to dig into the maths with small groups of pupils. So in term one, they look at uh, misconceptions in fractions or misconceptions in algebra and, and work very, very closely with a focus group of pupils to understand what's going on in that in that particular topic. And that then all feeds into them, them being really successful when they move on to their main teaching practice placement after Christmas. I think the other key for me is that um, I do think here we understand how hard it is to learn to teach and how complicated it is and what an up and down journey, uh, the journey to becoming a teacher is. And what I think is important is for student teachers to have a safe space that's not related to a context where they can just go, oh, my goodness, me, why is this not working? <laughs> And, and feel comfortable to be able to say that or or why am I really worried at the moment or one of the things I've done this year for the first time and it's a, a new venture for me Craig and a bit of a scary one but I've been writing a blog this year for oh, our nice. teachers and it's a, a weekly one and it's just trying to support them through this year and the interesting thing is so I've done stuff on there about setting targets and moving targets into actions and stuff. But the ones where I've had the most feedback from the students is the ones where I've looked at sort of how they how they're feeling and how their emotions are. So I wrote one a few months ago about I think one of the biggest problems for beginning teachers is probably the two main reasons you come into teaching is because you love your subject and you think you really love working with kids. <laughs> and then in your training year, Actually, your subject becomes really hard again. Yes. You're not doing the higher level exciting stuff that you were doing at degree. And I think you have to learn to, to relove your subject as a teacher and get excited about the new maths you're learning that's at a different level sort of thing. And that takes time. And then the other thing is, actually, when you're learning, you don't love kids. They're quite hard work. <laughs> yes. And you can even some days actually hate them. Yes. And that's really difficult to deal with, I think, emotionally, because it rocks everything that you think you were doing the, the thing for. So um, I think for me, us understanding the journey beginning teachers are going on is a really key feature of our course and giving them space to, to go wrong, to make mistakes, to say exactly how they're feeling and not be judged is, is crucial. And I think particularly at the moment where the, the agenda in school is so much about getting things right straight away and, you know, pupils making progress every lesson and so on. It's, it's very hard to learn to teach in that environment. So for us, providing a space where you can worry about that and not be judged about that, I think is crucial. And two of the 
kind of most common complaints I get from younger teachers and and I think nationally this is probably the two of the reasons that we see such a, a dropout of, of maths teachers is is behavior management and also workload um, especially in those, in those early years <laughs> so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that is that something that you find that your teacher trainees struggle with those two aspects and also what what support can you offer um, for those two areas for behavior and management yeah. and workload I, I could have guessed which who you were going to say <laughs> um, so behavior that one I think is I think that's where it's really important for student teachers to have time to watch lots of different teachers and to be given space to develop their own approach to behavior for learning but to be really well supported while they're doing that so I think it's really important for them to be able to see teachers and say oh I like that bit of what they're doing that would fit my style yes. but I could never do that um, you know, that, that will never work for me, uh, but this will work for me. Uh, we talk a lot with our partnership schools about, you know, if, if you're in a maths department and uh, I'm a, a young, perhaps quite quiet female and all the people in the department are quite larger than life males, I need to be able to go into another department and watch how a successful quiet female yes does things so I think it's really important for behavior management to yeah there's loads of really good tips out there there's some fantastic resources that you can look at there's you know obviously there's policies in schools and stuff but you need to be given space to work out what works for you and you need to be supported to do that um, I don't believe that beginning teachers should be left to sink or swim with classes I think um you know, I remember in my NQT year really, really struggling with a class and needing the deputy head to help me with them. Yes. Um, because the only people that those kids were going to um, behave for were people that were really established in the school. Yes. And I wasn't. So I think we need to look after our beginning teachers around behaviour for learning. And I think sometimes we forget that in schools. I think sometimes, you know, because the pressure is so great, these kids have got to behave. We forget how hard it was when we began to do that. So I think that's really important. Can I just ask on that one, Steph? Yeah. Um, so is that to a certain extent kind of out of your hands as the as a university? Because because I remember certainly um, when we have our trainees in, we, we try and put kind of a bit of a bespoke program on for them and we, we focus on behaviour and we try and make sure that the, the observed teachers, as you say, across different departments so that they can find different styles of work for them. But I'd imagine that isn't something that happens um, in all schools. So how does the kind of university help support students who perhaps are in a school environment that, that isn't that conducive to helping them make progression? Good question. Um, certainly on PGCE, it, again, it comes down to the partnership that we've got. So uh, we've got very clear sort of expectations as a partnership. We spend a lot of time with mentors in mentor training, sort of talking about how you help beginning teachers become resilient, how you help them develop their identity, um, and how all of that links to behaviour management. The students have all got a dedicated university tutor, as you know. So we would go in, there's a, a, a minimum number of times we'd go into a school, but if there was a problem, we'd go in more often. And that sometimes might be where we would be the advocate for a student. So I might be watching a student teacher and they're, they're managing fine with a year seven class, a year nine class, a year 10 class, and the teacher's saying, or the mentor's saying, but they can't control this year eight class. And that might be then when together and, and relying on the depth of the relationship between me and the mentor and how we trust each other, we're able to say, well, actually, it's a bit unfair to judge them on this one class because 
other people in the school are struggling with this class. What could we do about that? So perhaps they've learned from this class and now we could give them a different class to work with. So we the relationship we've got with our mentors enables us to have sometimes difficult conversations, to be honest, but conversations where we can be the advocate for the trainee and give them the best possible chance of being successful. Got it. Fantastic. And what, and what about workload then? What? What? Uh, yeah. Did, is that something that crops up a lot? Um, is that because I remember that was a flipping shock to my system. I, I can tell you that much. Even from PGCE year through to NQT year, like the workload, and it, it's still is it's still a frightening prospect. So, how do 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 your trainees find that that's an issue, and and how do you help kind of support them with that? Um, absolutely. Our trainees and our NQTs. I yes. mean, you know, I spent a lot of time this year having coffees with NQTs, <laughs> getting them through the stresses of work. Um, so the sorts of things we're doing, um, we work, we talk about it a lot. So we're really open and honest with our students about it. And we talk to them about coming to us if they're worried, uh, similar to the behaviour, sitting us sitting down as a sort of group of three. So me as a tutor, the mentor and the student and sort of trying to help them make sense of the workload. Um, we're talking a lot as a partnership about being kind to our trainees about workloads. So at the moment we're working with, we've got a working party with a group of um, coordinators. So those are the people in school who uh, look after all the students, regardless of subject in the school. And we're putting together a partnership um, guide to workload, particularly the first one is focusing on assessment and marking. And what we would see as a, a build up of expectations across a training year, what we think is unrealistic to ask of a trainee teacher, how we think as a partnership we should be supporting trainee teachers with workload. Um, so we're doing that. And then we're also uh, our beginning this term. We're doing a lot with our beginning teachers about getting ready for their NQT year. So they in maths, they've got like a task a booklet that they're working through that's all about workload in relation to marking and assessment and they have to sit with an experienced teacher and look at how you use data in the class they have to think about um, how to record data and, and report data to different audiences there's a task that's about their emotional well-being and getting top tips from all the teachers in the department about how do you manage your workload where do you protect time um, and then again, the blog, but there's been a real focus in that about being kind to yourself at weekends, at holidays, at how you block out time to do the best you can, but also to look after yourself. Because if you don't and you're not resilient, then you're not going to be a very good teacher anyway. <laughs> that, that sounds, again, very, very sound advice there, Steph. And one question that I've asked all the people who I've interviewed on there, um, and I think it'd be interesting to, to ask you this, is if... Is there anything that you'd include on your PGC course that isn't currently part of it? Is there anything that you think is important that maybe you're looking to add in the next few years or or something that you personally would like to see there that you think will be an, an important thing for, for trainee teachers to experience? Good question. Maths wise, I think we're, we're adding stuff to it every year. Um, and at the moment, like I've said before, our focus is really on uh, decompressing expert mathematical knowledge, 
thinking about what your knowledge for teaching is and um, and then building that into your planning of and designing of lessons. And we've already got plans about how we're going to develop that even further next year. And our, what we're also doing, which I'm really enjoying, is getting more and more opportunities for us to work with our partnership schools on that. So a, a full day with us all together in a school, all watching a lesson, sort of building in lesson study um, into some of the stuff we're doing is really exciting. At PGC as a whole, I would really like, and we've started conversations about this as well, to build in more about uh, young people's mental health and um, what a what you need to know as a teacher in relation to that and um, thinking about that, but also the fact that actually our beginning teachers on the whole, most of them are still young people. So thinking about how to support them with their mental health, their emotional well-being, um, in what is a really stressful career at the moment, <laughs> but a really lovely career as well. I hastened to add a very exciting and very rewarding career, but it is one that can create moments of high stress. So um, we're looking at developing stuff that responds to that. Oh, that sounds very interesting. No, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, you, we've kind of touched a little bit up, uh, on the role of, of schools um, in terms of kind of obviously their, their, their housing and helping to train um, your, your trainee teachers yeah. and so on. What, what are some of the best practices that you see in schools to support your trainee teachers? Um, it's, it's, but I feel like I might be repeating myself it's a bit more of the same really and um, the schools we work with the schools that we're in really close partnership with I think there's some key things one is um, that we both understand what we bring to the table and that we've both got real expertise and that both sets of expertise are needed um, and I think that helps I think a school in, in, as, in as just as the way a university needs to understand how crucial schools are schools that understand what we can bring I think means that we can do much more exciting things with our trainees so I think that's important I think schools that have again it's that same idea that they are remembering how hard it was to learn to teach um, and providing opportunities for their trainee teachers to make mistakes to take risks uh, to have a go and uh, and be able to share having a go and learn from having a go that's where the really good practice is i think and if one of our listeners is a, a teacher trainee mentor with, within a school as i know many of them will be have you got any advice for them about what what you see in successful mentors um yeah, I think there's lots of things. I think a really successful mentor has time for their trainee teachers and that they're able to, however busy they are, and I think this is really hard because everybody's really busy, but be able to make it look like they're not busy when they've got that time with their trainee. So almost like when it's when it's time for me to meet with my trainee, I take a deep breath and I calm everything down so the trainee doesn't feel like I'm so busy that they're imposing on me. Yes. I, I think that's really key. Um, I think a, a mentors that are willing to sort of team teach with their trainees, I think that's fantastic. Ones that are able to that invest the time at the beginning in building up a really trusting relationship. So um, one of the students that I'm working with at the moment, I think her mentor has done such a good job of getting that relationship right. It means that he can actually overtly mentor within the middle of a lesson. So because she trusts him so much, 
and because he's shown his respect for her in the middle of a lesson he could go up and a bit like almost secret nanny you know like <laughs> whisper and say well just see what's happening over there yes. you know and i think having that relationship where you can do that is fantastic i think that what you can achieve with that instead of a more sort of formulaic relationship where this is our mental meeting and if i'm in a lesson i'm watching you makes a massive difference um and uh, same same message again mentors that remember it was hard themselves and are willing to be open about that and ones who are able to model not just model teaching but model professionalism model thinking about teaching so mentors who are able to say you know i've just taught this lesson and i don't understand why this happened and this is how like overtly modeling how they're thinking about their own practice um overtly modeling where they're making decisions to look after themselves so actually saying to the trainee look i'm going home tonight and my bag is empty i'm not going to yes, yes. <laughs> so it's it's those sorts of things that i think make the difference and for subject specific and where i wish we could get to with all our mentors would be amazing is mentors that are also willing to unpick the maths to the same level and really research question um, research lessons really think about the design of the maths journey through the lesson i think you're right and i think i'd add to that if any of our listeners have the opportunity to become a mentor for a trainee teacher please 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 take it because it's it's an honor and a privilege firstly to watch watch anybody teach and to work with someone early on in in their career but also i kind of draw the parallel where if i've got a kind of a really able student in my class then i put them to to work with somebody who's perhaps struggling on a particular concept it really makes you think about your own practice and it really improves you as a teacher as well just as just as a student having to try and explain and unpick the misconceptions of another student to help them understand something improves the depth of their mathematical learning as a teacher trying to help you know make another teacher better and help them plan better it just makes you so much more reflective on your own practice and just makes you a better teacher and, and perhaps a better person as well so if anybody's listening who has the opportunity to do this and i i don't think it matters whether you've been teaching two years five years 20 years or whatever i would strongly advise you you take that opportunity here here i completely <laughs> agree <laughs> <laughs> fantastic uh well, Steph, I'd like to now move on to um, a kind of maybe a slightly controversial thing. I'm going to ask you two tricky questions in a second. But first, can you just paint paint a picture for our listeners? Um, what's been the trend in numbers of um, teachers signing up to, to PGC and um, particularly PGC secondary maths courses? Has it been constant? Is it on a decline? Is it on an ascent? What, what have you seen over the last few years? Um, okay, it, it, it's tricky at the moment. Um, I think maths trainee numbers always fluctuate. Uh, I think they're always related to the recession to a certain extent. Uh, so as you see the country coming out of a recession, then there's more and more opportunities for maths graduates. So you often that hits a little bit. Um, numbers at the moment for us are, uh, you know, it's it's a harder battle at the moment to get recruit to recruit than it has been historically in the last few years. On saying that, we've had those periods of time before and we've worked our way through them, you know, because it's a fantastic career. So it, it but I, I think we're having to work harder at the moment to get that message out there of what a wonderful career it is and how amazing it can be to be a maths teacher. Certainly. 
Okay, right. So here, here's your opportunity here, Steph. So the, the first, I don't know which one's going to be the trickier one to answer it, but I'm going to go with the first one. If we've got somebody listening who's considering a career as a maths teacher, why should they choose PGCE versus, say, Schools Direct? Okay. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say they should choose one versus the other. I think they should research really, really carefully what they want. Um, I'm not anti-school direct at all. We've got a fantastic school direct course here that we um, deliver working with our partnership schools. I think for me, the key is that if you were wanting to train to be a teacher, you invest the time in looking at where the right place to do that would be. And you think about everything that goes beyond the short term. So my argument why I think it would be good to do a course with a university that's doing the sort of exciting stuff that we're doing, whether that's PGC or School Direct, is because I genuinely believe that we are setting our beginning teachers up to be um, exciting, interested, enthusiastic, resilient maths teachers for the duration of their career. So it's not in one context. It's not in one formula. So that if it, but it's all about teaching and learning maths. So if uh, if a policy changed, or if a curriculum changed, if I went from one type of school to another type of school, it wouldn't phase me. I would be all right, and I'd be able to say I still know what good teaching is. I still know how kids learn my subject, and I can make sense of this new context because I've got that depth of knowledge. So it's not the one route's better than another route. I think it's about what you're getting from a route that's really important and what opportunities opportunities you're getting and for me the key is that you look and think beyond the the instant right that that's going to happen this year I'm going to be in this school this year and that looks amazing and you think about what's going to prepare me to want to be a teacher for years and years and years got it okay that meant that you've sold me a bit on that one I think I think I'm happy <laughs> with that what about if we've got somebody listening and they've decided right I'm definitely going to do a PGCE I'm, I'm very happy with that decision well why should they choose Nottingham as opposed <laughs> to anywhere else okay uh, this feels a bit of a sell but all right then. <laughs> you um, can go for it go for it <laughs> okay I think uh, I think there's quite a lot of reasons I think one is we've been around for a long time and we know what we're doing um, so we've got people who have got national, international reputations in terms of teacher education. We're constantly evolving. We're constantly changing our course based on the very latest thinking. And I think that's crucial. Um, every single one of the tutors that works on our, either our PGC or our school direct course has been a really good teacher themselves in the classroom, is still in the classroom regularly, works really closely with uh, teachers in schools, um, has got, uh, you know, lots going on for them with their subjects. So lots of our tutors are involved in different national associations and boards. So like I'm on the ACME Outer Circle. We've got people that are in the, you know, part of the Maths Association, ATM and so on. So I think that's really important, the people that you're working with. Um, I think the opportunities we're offering our maths trainees at the moment are just so exciting. Um, so the, the, they do lots of stuff where we as a cohort do things together. So we um, over the year, we spent several days where we're all together in a school watching lessons. Uh, we worked with one of our local hub mass hubs again when the Shanghai teachers were over and we all went and watched that and made sense of that. Um, 
They're working with the researchers from the centre, as I mentioned before. Um, at the moment, we've got actually this week, we've got running with one of our local partnership schools that's a regional Apple training centre. Uh, we've got students spending the whole week there creating their own um, digital books based on uh, misconceptions that will hopefully be published uh, by the end of the week. So I just think the opportunities that we offer and that focus again, I think we have taken the course so far in recent years, focusing on teachers' subject knowledge and how you plan really, really good maths lessons, sequences of maths learning. Um, yeah, that I think is pretty hard to find elsewhere. <laughs> I'm sure it can be found elsewhere, but I think we do a very, very good job of it. <laughs> I think you, you've sold me on that one, and uh, like I've, I have no shame in saying I had an absolutely excellent time when I did my PGC there. But it sounds just from talking to you now, stuff. It sounds like it's come on leaps and bounds, and I, I really like the emphasis on the kind of theoretical and mathematical side of it, and also, as you say, the, the planning side of it, because. Um, Again, that, that's so important. You, if you get your plan right and you know exactly what, what you're going to do and what you're aiming for, other things fall into place behind that, and behaviour in particular, I think. And it's like, like when, you, when you describe that lesson, that the bearings lesson at the start of, the start of this interview, like behaviour problems will happen because of that jolt in the, in the in kids, the yeah, what they have to do there. Like if, if they're so focused in on the maths and it's a smooth transition and a th smooth progression throughout the lesson, then they don't have that opportunity to misbehave. And obviously that's it's not going to happen in every single occasion, but a well-planned out lesson and a well-planned out sequence of lessons where the kids know what they're doing and why they're doing it, that can help alleviate a lot of the problems that they find. So no, it's, it's sounding an excellent course to me, Steph. No, I'm, I'm liking the sound of that. Thanks, mate. <laughs> um, I want to just ask you now, um, Steph, because obviously um, whilst PGC numbers are fluctuating, one thing that's in a definite kind of ascendancy is the number of maths teachers leaving the profession. And we hear of a national maths crisis and so on. And I don't think there's, there's any hiding behind the numbers. Um, you obviously are in quite a unique position in, in the sense that you must be able to kind of track former students and know who leaves and who doesn't leave. So I wonder, are there any common traits there or any, any common reasons why teachers leave the profession? I think you could guess, Craig, actually. Uh, workload and work-life balance, I think, is it seems to me the biggest uh, reason that I come across when I talk to anybody that's leaving. Yeah. I mean, a lot. What's lovely, certainly locally for us, is we've done a, a lot of work as well over recent years in terms of making our beginning teachers see themselves as part of a community of maths educators that goes way beyond their uh, training year. So we, we work with both of our local hubs. We run various events that are for any maths teachers in any of our partnership schools. Um, and there's lots of research projects as well. So a lot of ours uh, stay with us, working with us in other ways, or they might carry on and do their masters. And that helps because it's almost like they've still got the safe space. So just as an example, on Tuesday this week, I had one of my ex-students came in, spent two hours having a coffee with me, feeling very stressed about workload and about whether it was right and so on. I'd like to think, and I've had texts since that would prove it, that he feels a lot better now <laughs> because he's had that opportunity to think and then go away with a new idea of what he's going to do next. So to me, I think the key in terms of keeping people is is sort of knowing 
that it's a it, it, it's difficult and and creating communities where you can keep being inspired so that the difficult bits don't grow bigger than the enjoyable bits i think the key is to keep finding what you're really enjoying about your job and and working as a teacher and as long as you keep revisiting that then you're resilient enough to cope with some of the daftness that might come along the way which has always been the case there's nothing new there it's it's part of the the deal really um so i think I've, I do think it is workload. I think it's the sort of pressures of performativity that are getting in the way quite a lot at the moment. Um, and sometimes I think in certain contexts, we've got teachers who have sort of, then they've lost sight of their own confidence in themselves almost. So they're not sure where they're valued. They're not sure whether they're doing the right thing. And if you put that alongside workload, it then just becomes too big a thing to cope with. And so it's easier to decide you want to go elsewhere. And how, how would you fix that, Steph? Because obviously your, your former students are in a, a very privileged position that they, they've got you to fall back on and they, they've got the safe space and so on. But what, what, what are we going to do with, with the profession? Because it, it is, there is a danger though, right? Like we, we, we went to advert for um, a maths teacher the, the other day and we're really struggling. And I don't, I don't think it's just isolated in, in the northwest where I'm based. We're struggling to recruit decent teachers because there is a, a shortage of, of them around because I believe so many so many are leaving the profession how, how can we fix it uh, this is a hard question <laughs> um i think I, I personally i think at all levels right from what we're doing with our kids up into what we're doing with our teachers the focus is too much on performance and outcomes and numbers and you know end results and i think providing a bit of space to let everybody, whether that's teachers or whether that's pupils, just enjoy learning again and uh, be able to just enjoy a lesson for the enjoyment of discovering something would help a lot. Uh, but it's easier said than done. <laughs> <laughs> it makes a lot of sense, though, Steph. Yeah. No, it's, it certainly does. Well, just a, a final couple of questions from me. And I just I just wondered if we've got someone listening to this podcast who's thinking about embarking upon teacher training, whether it be PGCE or Schools Direct or whatever, would you have any advice for them about what they could do to best prepare themselves or maybe the kind of things that they should think about, um, about their kind of motives for doing it? Well, what advice would you give to somebody thinking about starting teacher training i would um, certainly i'd get into schools i'd observe some lessons i'd observe some teaching i think sometimes where people um get caught out is that they uh, remember really enjoying school themselves as a pupil and they perhaps have done some tutoring or done some work in informal settings with young people and think oh yeah i'd really like to be a teacher so i think it's really important to get into a maths department and understand what the day-to-day -day life of being a teacher is and check that you still like to, that's what you really want to do. Talk to teachers, so speak to people, but avoid those ones that are being cynical. Talk to <laughs> yes, people yes. that really like the profession still and get them to explain why they still love it because that's really important. But equally understand where some of the pressures might be so that you're prepared if, if you come to interview you're prepared to talk about that and how you would cope with some of those things um, start thinking about teaching and learning so uh, what do you think makes a good teacher why do you think that uh, how did you learn 
is it the best way? Might there have been another way that could have worked? Would it have worked for all pupils? Um, particularly, like I said earlier, with maths, you know, I think a lot of ours come to us with that vision that, you know, there is one way of teaching maths and it worked for me and forget that it didn't work for lots and lots of people. Um, I think starting thinking about your your subject, what it is you like about your subject, um, why you want to be a teacher of that subject, um, what sort of teacher you expect you're going to be, you know, what sort of teacher would you like to be and why would you like to be that? Because that then helps, you know, is, is your vision a realistic one or, you know, do you need some help sort of thinking a bit about the journey that you're going to go on? Um, what else? I think all of that would be real. And just, and like I said before, explore your options, take your time and focus on finding a route that will, A, um, prepare you to be able to teach in any context. So one that focuses on teaching and learning and teaching and learning maths, not teaching and learning in this way, in this context, but also find routes that will look after you, ones that are interested in the journey that you're going on as a beginning teacher and the complexities of that journey. That sounds good. And the, the final one for me, Steph, what happens if we've got someone listening um, who's just come to the end of their teacher training year and about to embark upon their NQT? What advice would you have for those? <sighs> Don't panic. <laughs> um, okay, my advice would be very similar to the advice that I would give trainees. Uh, your NQT is not going to be easy. Um, it's going to be more more complex, just like this year has been complex. If you're going to a new school, then you're going to be starting from scratch again with relationships. So I would certainly spend time now while you're still in school, when you can still talk to teachers, getting tips about what do you do in those first lessons? What do you do to develop relationships? Um, you know, what, what sort of activities do you use in your first lesson? So like I always used to use um, either four fours, you know, where you've got yes. a yeah, classic. Yeah. Now I used to use that with every single class on the first lesson I had with them because I could explain it in five seconds flat. The kids could access it really easily and then I could focus on getting to know them. Do you just want to tell listeners what that is, Steph, just in case we've got some people who haven't haven't done that classic activity? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you've got four fours and uh, you can do, well, you can decide the rules really with the class, but basically you are doing calculations. You have to use all four fours. Um, in my version, you can add, subtract, divide, uh, multiply. Um, you can't, in my version, you can't put them together. So you can't put a four and a four to yes. make 44, though I think some people sometimes do that differently, but that's the way I would do it. Um, as they get into it, we might agree other rules. So we might agree that you can square or we might agree that you can use factorial. You know, we might add other rules in there. But basically, I normally start with 1 to 20. And what they've got to do is try and find a calculation that will give each of those answers. It's harder than, it think, than you think and it takes a lot of playing around with numbers. But I like it because you can explain it really quickly. You can get a couple of examples out of pupils quickly and then you might get them having a go on their own or having a go in pairs. Um, the differentiation is sort of built in there because some kids might do the calculations in harder ways or might find more numbers than others. But it gives you the freedom to get to know the pupils and, and for me to reinforce some really big um, messages about my expectations without saying these are, you know, Mrs. Sullivan's rules. So it's sort of like 
if there's a really nice working atmosphere and then the noise is really nice, then I would be saying, this is a really lovely noise level. This is what I expect in my lessons. Or if a pupil gives a really good example, I'd explain, you know, I'm really impressed with how you've reasoned what you've done there. I like to see that in my lessons. So I, it's that idea of what am I going to do right at the beginning that gives me the space to set things up that will then pay dividends for the rest of the year. I think that's that's very sound advice and that that kind of fits my definition of a, a low barrier high ceiling task in the sense that every, every child can have success within the first 20 seconds and then there's enough mathematics in there to keep even the brightest really busy and, and really challenged and as you say you can explain it in five seconds so you're not having to get a get a whole kind of set of rules out with kids that you don't know who listens and who doesn't listen or anything like that you set it up within five seconds get the rest of the class off and then you can wander around and get to know your students because as as we all know it's the relationships that a teacher has with the students that are going to make or break them and Absolutely. are going to going to determine the progress the kids make the enjoyment that the kids have and the enjoyment that the teacher has so the quicker you can start establishing those relations uh, yeah definitely and the thing is if, you, if you've got teachers listening to this you think oh Oh God, the, the kind of kids I teach will never go for anything like that. You'd be surprised because even the most mathematically reluctant of students love a little number problem like that. Love something where they can have success. They can see, all right, I've combined these numbers together one way and I've made 11. Right, okay, I'm happy with myself there. There's another 19 numbers now I've got to find. And it spurs them on. So, yeah, things like that, definitely. That is an ideal first lesson, Steph. I yeah, and I think the key to it, there's a couple of things that's worth saying about that task. One is where I've seen people make the mistake in terms of supporting kids that are struggling is giving them a number to aim for. Yes. And that yes. doesn't help at no, all. Because then you restrict them. And where you would say, you know, is that playing with them? But the other thing I was going to say is in one of, um, when I was head of maths in a school, we once did that with the whole of the school so we started off and uh, we introduced it in an assembly and we had a massive display board in the hall that had all the numbers from one to a hundred nice. and we started with the youngest year group in the first two days could add num add answers on and then we worked our way up and by the end of the week i always remember this dad coming in to me going look for goodness sake i'm getting really really cross how do you go <laughs> <laughs> so it was just such a nice way of getting the whole school just talking about maths in a really, like you say, low level, easy access sort of way. Absolutely. That's superb, superb advice. Well, Steph, um, we've moved on to the final bit now, which is the big three. So if um, if somebody was to, to visit three websites or links or pages or whatever you like that, that, that you'd recommend, what, what would they be? And I'll include links to these in the podcast show notes. OK, I picked one obvious one, but just because I think every maths teacher should be looking at it and that's Enrich um, which I'm sure lots of people will know about anyway but I just think that's such a good site to go to. How can I just ask on Enrich Steph because I think it's one of those sites that everybody knows but I'm not convinced it's used as much as it, it should be so how, how would you advise people use Enrich or how have you seen it used well? Um, I've seen it used by lots of different ways. I mean, I know some teachers who use it for, um, I think why I like it is you could use it in a big way or a little way. So I think you could pick up some of their problems and have them uh, either 
like as a display in a I think they're a really nice way of thinking about what sort of mass displays interactive mass displays you might have in your classroom um, so putting some of their problems up there and having them up for kids to dwell on over you know a week or a couple of weeks and then talking about them I think there's nice little gems in there for homework activities and then I think you could work all the way through to you might pick something off there to use for an entire lesson for the main feature of a lesson almost but what I like about it is it's, it's that focus on um, thinking mathematically, inquiring into something mathematically and sort of, well, problem solving, really, and coming coming to an answer with some hard thought. <laughs> Absolutely. Fantastic. No, excellent first choice. What, what about your other two? So my other two, one is uh, Colin Foster's website. So he's one of our math tutor team here. And I think his uh, mathematical beginning site is uh, just really lovely. Uh, I like the idea of, of starting with an image and posing some questions for pupils from an image and getting them to think about that. So I think that's a really nice one to look at. And then the third one is our the Centre for Research into Maths Education here that I've put on, which basically gives you links into sort of some quite old stuff, really, some Shell Centre stuff, but just some really good publications that can, again, and they go all the way through the spectrum. So there's some nice publications there that have got short sort of small problem solving tasks that you could just go, oh, yeah, I'd like to use that through to you can link up to the Boland stuff where you've got really detailed uh, CPD for math teachers and math departments. So I think there's there's a massive uh, wealth of stuff you could have a look at there that would be appropriate for any level of teacher in terms of how experienced they are. Well, that's a superb choice there, Steph. And I'd uh, just like to say thanks so much for, for taking the time to join us on this podcast and, and for painting, painting the picture of what the PGCE is like at the moment and how, how it's developed. And also just, yeah, thank you for, for certainly inspiring me in my career and I know lots of other teachers. So thanks so much for that. Oh, thanks. Well, thanks for inviting me on, Craig. And I do think what's so lovely is seeing our ex ex students and seeing what amazing things they're doing and the fact that they're still math teachers they've not disappeared they actually still want to be teachers and are really excited about being teachers so thank you <laughs> <laughs> So there you have it. There was my interview with Stephanie Sullivan, who's in charge of the PGC as a whole at Nottingham University, but still heavily involved in the secondary maths PGCE training programme. Now, I'm obviously ridiculously biased on this one, as I have a great fondness for Steph and all the uh, tutors that I was fortunate enough to work with at Nottingham during my training year. But I hope you agree with me that that was very interesting and, and very useful stuff. Um, in terms of a takeaway, what I want to focus on um, in this particular episode is just the difficulty of teaching. And I think when I was preparing to, to interview Steph and, and cer certainly when I was talking to Steph, it really made me look back and, and think about both my training year and my first kind of few years in teaching. And I'm, I might get an explicit rating on iTunes for this, but it, it's worth it um, just to say it's a bloody tough job. And I remember my, my first placements when I was in Nottingham. I was lucky enough to be in a decent school. And by decent school, um, I don't mean that the kids were immaculately behaved and all that kind of stuff. And it was it was high flying. What I mean was that I was I was supported. I was supported by my mentor. 
and I also have that support to fall back on from the uni university as well. And I know a lot of my uh, fellow PGC students were not that fortunate. And, and for me, that first placement is almost make or break because it's such a shock to the system, the PGC as a whole anyway. Um, and I think I've talked about this many a time and it, it's an obvious point to make, but generally, if, you, if you're applying to, to become a math teacher and do a math teacher program, um, training program, it's because you enjoy mathematics. And more often than not, it's because you're very good at mathematics. And it comes as a bit of a shock to the system that the whole world isn't also good at maths and, and enjoy mathematics. And, and I remember when, when I first started teaching, it was I found it tough that kids didn't enjoy the maths as much as I did and, and, and didn't understand the maths as much as I did. And when you combine that with kind of behavior management issues, which often happens if, if you've pitched the lesson incorrectly or the pacing's wrong and so on, it can be a real shock to the system, a real demoralizing kind of kick to you. And unless you have that support, as I say, whether it be through the university or probably most importantly in that first placement and subsequent placements within schools, it can be the end of your career before it's even started. And a lot of the people on my on my PGC cohorts and no longer are teachers, and this is this is kind of true across all PGC cohorts. And a lot of them, the kind of damage was done in that kind of early early phase. And as Steph pointed out, that there's kind of only so much the university can do. They they, they can work closely. Um, with schools and, and go in and visit but it's it's that relationship that the trainee teachers form with the teachers that they work with and um, in particularly their mentor but also any other teacher in the department that really shapes their career so i guess for, from this takeaway that, that there's two things firstly if you're a, a trainee teacher yourself that, that's listening or somebody thinking about going into the profession firstly do it because it's a great profession but secondly it's flipping hard um you need to know that it, it really really is tough and thirdly, don't worry that it's tough because everybody finds it tough. Everybody. I mean, God, I was ready to quit so many times and not just in my training year. Training year, NQT year, when I moved schools <laughs> last week and I've been teaching for 11 years. I've had enough many a time. It's a flipping hard job, but but do it. It's the best job in the world. It really, really is. So that, that's my first first one for, for the students. But then a second plea to, to anyone who works with, with trainee teachers. And as I say, that could be the mentor or it could be someone who you've got a student teacher attached to your class and perhaps you do uh, you share classes with them or even if you've just got that student teacher in the department who who you haven't kind of perhaps talked to or something like that just a plea just just to just to go over to them and, and just see how they're getting on and, and just just talk to them because it, it's one of the greatest gifts in the world the fact that you can help shape the next generation of teachers and as Steph said it, it's about trying to empathize and remember just how tough the job can be and especially, this sounds corny, I'm flipping going on a little bit here, but especially if, if you think back, did, did, if you had any kind of inspirational teachers in the early stages of your career or, or tutors or something, and just what an impact they had on you, you know, you could be that person. You, you could be the person who, who stops somebody quitting or, or gives them an idea or just lets them kind of unburden themselves for a, a few minutes. And also, in a selfish reason, you, you could learn something. I, I learned tons from our trainee teachers, all the latest ideas and stuff that are going out. So I guess this long rambling takeaway is, is, is just to say... Let's, as teachers ourselves, let's remember what it was like and let's try and help out the, the new generation. And the new generation yourselves, just you're in for a rocky ride, but it's a rocky ride that's worth it. Anyway, before I uh, ramble on any more, it's like some kind of flipping Oscar winning speech, this or something like that. Let me hand back to Steph, who's got a lovely podcast puzzle for us. Uh, but it's a bit of a twist to this podcast puzzle. It's, you need a bit of a visual aid with you. Now, I've put a link to this in the uh, podcast 
notes page. I've also attempted to kind of embed it within the podcast uh, page itself. Now you might, if you if you look on my blog, hopefully you'll see the image. Uh, but if you if you just kind of look on the notes on iTunes, you, it, it might not be apparent. So um, just just follow the link through, and you'll see. Because it's a lovely little angles problem. Anyway, let me hand back to Stephanie Sullivan with our podcast. Okay, I was a bit stumped on this one, actually, Craig, because I sort of thought of all sorts of different things. And when when I was teaching, I liked to just really open sort of offering something out to kids and getting them to puzzle over them. So like, this is a palindromic number, have a play and see what you can find out about them. But I have picked a task and the one I've picked is one of Collins. Um, and it's one that we've used on our uh, website to get our people that are interested in teaching thinking about mathematical tasks and what they mean to them so it's a diagram I'm going to do a very poor description of it online but basically there are uh, there's four um, shapes squares rectangles and there's four angles marked and what you've got to do is you've got to find a connection between those angles and it's just one way you've got to look and puzzle over and just have a think about what's going on which is why I like Um, What we're asking people to think about in terms of why we've put it on the website is, you know, do I like the task? How would I solve it? How would I imagine using it? And interestingly, could I come up with something like that myself? Would would I be excited about creating a similar sort of puzzle myself? So that's one I've picked. So there we have it, another Mr. Barton Maths podcast all done and dusted. Thanks so much once again to Steph Sullivan for agreeing to be interviewed and sharing her insights with us, and also to podcastthemes.com for permission to use the lovely jazzy music that you heard throughout the show. Once again, my final plea, if you wouldn't mind just giving us a little review and maybe a little comment or two on iTunes, ideally a non-abusive one, (laughs) that would be absolutely ideal. I've got some cracking guests lined up for the the next few episodes, so I, I, I genuinely cannot wait to to share them with you and I I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Um, Anyway, thanks so much for listening, it really does mean the world to me and I will see you next time. Take care and bye for now.